If you're watching this uh, Sunday and you're in one of our Gather Homes, welcome to Gather Homes. We're so excited for you. This, uh, if this is your first time being around people in three and a half months, it's okay if you're a little bit awkward. Everybody's a little bit awkward right now. I had some, uh, uh, I got to talk to some people face to face this week and it was supposed to be a 30 minute conversation and I'm a preacher and I haven't had a human person to preach at in three and a half months. I had them for three hours, bless their hearts. We've got a few people worshiping with us here tonight, just a small number of people that couldn't contain it anymore. They had to get out and worship a little bit. And, um, if, uh, if you're ever interested and you want to be a part of this event where we, we record this message live and we have some people here, it's possible we've got to keep those numbers very low right now uh, because we're still thinking about COVID-19 and, and, and keeping everybody safe. But if you would like to be a part of these recordings, you can reach out to our staff info at gatherashville.org and we'll get you on a list and we'll let you know um, when, when your time is up, you come worship with us. We love, love to have you. Well, we're so excited uh, if you're able to experience real physical community today um, because we believe that it is such an important part of what it is to be the church, is to be together in proximity with one another. I think proximity is so important. Um, at six feet proximity, you know, we're still being safe, but I think it matters so much to us. And if you're not ready for that yet, I want you to know that we understand that, that we, we don't, we're not, we don't look down on you. We don't think less of you that, that we understand that it's a, it's a strange time right now. And so take your time, you know, we're glad you're worshiping with us online. Say hi down in the comments. Let us know you're here and, and we, we, we take your time and come back when you're ready. We'll be here. We'll be waiting. Well, today is going to go a little bit differently than planned. A lot has happened this year. Everybody, let's just take a deep breath together. It's been a lot. It's been, it's been a year. It's been, it's, been, it's been a long decade this year. And today we're going to talk about what the rest of the world is talking about, what I hope that you've been talking about this week. We're going to talk about race and racism and our response as the church to the current goings on in the world. This is a season where I believe the church has to respond. And this is a topic that I believe the church has to respond to. The gospel is the heart changing message of the work that God has done to redeem us through Jesus and the cross. And because of this redemptive work, and because of the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I are able to have our hearts changed and transformed. And what we've been talking about is a heart issue. And what I know is that because of the cross, and because of Jesus, what was evil can become good. What was sin can be forgiven. What was hatred can become love. I believe that what the world is facing right now is not just a political matter, it's a hard matter. And that as our hearts change, the systems and the politics will begin to change. And changing hearts is the business of the church. It's what the church does. Nobody is in the business of changing hearts like the one that we serve and the one that we worship. As Paul shares with the Colossians, he tells them that they can learn to stop treating each other poorly since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on your new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. I believe this is a season that many of us are going to be renewed in our knowledge. I want to start just by sharing my story. 
If you have been around our church for any period of time, you know that who I am is not who I was. I was radically changed when I gave my life to Jesus at 21 years old. Before that, I belonged to deep South Christian culture, and I did not fully understand the message of Jesus. And during this time, I was a part of the culture that has allowed racism to persist. I was not filled with hatred towards black people. It was more subtle than that. I think a lot of us get hung up here. We categorize all racism as outright physical hatred. But it's not always that. Sometimes it's the subtleties. It's the ways that we're complicit. It's the ways that we, that we keep doing what has been done before without questioning whether or not it was right in the first place. I had a Confederate flag sticker on my Jeep when I was in high school, and I loved that Confederate flag sticker. I was from Charleston, South Carolina, and I would be quick to argue with you and tell you that this is about heritage and not hate. I believed every single country music song that sang about that flag. I lived it. I had a big old whip antenna and mud all over my car. And to me, I was doing no wrong. People would tell me that this flag represented hate. And I would say, no, you're wrong. What you feel is wrong. What you're telling me you experience when you see it is wrong. As I got older and I began following Jesus, I became less vocal about it. Half the time, I, I just said those things to provoke people. Anyways, if you know me, you know I can be kind of a, a, a punk sometimes. I like to get a rise out of people. It's a terrible trait that I'm working hard to kill. And I would use this as that sometimes. But the truth was that I believed half the things I was saying or more. When I would see on the news a white cop excessively beating up or killing a black man, I would think that's probably an isolated event. There must have been more to this story. The news is sensationalizing an isolated incident. The systems they say are slanted, those have been gone for decades. I began to believe more and more that racism was something in a history book and the systems were fixed long ago. And then Ferguson happened. And the phrase Black Lives Matter entered our psyche. And I remember right in the beginning, right in the beginning, I was right there saying, no, all lives matter, right? Come on, guys. We all matter. Everybody matters. Why are we doing this? And I remember I had a conversation in the months that followed the events that took place at Ferguson that forever changed me forever changed me. I remember in one moment as I began to have this conversation I realized that I had been speaking without listening. That I had been making opinions based only on my own experiences. That I had been choosing to see the world that I was given without making any effort to experience the world someone else was given. I'm so bad at this, but I really do try to live the words of James chapter 1, where he says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. If, if you know me well, you know, it would be hard for you not to laugh when I say that that, that passage matters to me, because <laughs> I am a quick to speak kind of person. The, my, there's, no, there's never like a long distance between a thought and a word for me. It's just, um, and, and I know that about myself, and I try so hard to be quick to listen and slow to speak, and I was, 
I realized in a conversation shortly after Ferguson that I had never done that before when it came to the issue of race. I had, I had always been quick to speak, slow to listen. Or I had only been listening to people who looked just like me. And I became convicted. And I realized it was time for me to listen. I began having conversations about race and racism. I began to realize that it's not always about outright hatred, although sometimes it is, but that it's also assumptions that we make. Moments we are silent. Systems that have been in place for generations that are making our black neighbors and friends feel like their lives don't matter. I repent of the way that I thought before. If I fly a flag that symbolizes hatred to you, it does not matter what it means to me. See, I'm a follower of Jesus, which means that my first responsibility is to communicate love and compassion to you. It does not matter what I believe about it. And if I like it or not, that period of our history represents pain and anguish and hatred to an entire race of people. And I realize how wrong it was for me to support it. I repent of every conversation and every argument that I've ever had saying it was about states' rights. It was not, and I was wrong. And I see now that there are systems in place that are oppressive to black people. It's not an isolated incident. It's not just sensationalized by the news. My friends and neighbors feel this way, and so it's my responsibility to start listening. I've been stopped by the police dozens of times. I'm, a, I'm not a very good driver. I, I feel that I'm a good driver. I don't do a very good job of paying attention while I drive. It's hard for me. If I see a tree, I get distracted. And I, liked, I used to drive fast. I would probably say I've been stopped two dozen times uh, or more, maybe twice that, by police officers. I know. In that time, I can tell you how many traffic tickets I've got, 17. And that's probably half the times that I've been stopped. And listen, it's been a long time. I drive really a lot better now, all right? Don't, teenagers who don't use me as your driving role model. Um, every single time that I've been stopped, I've never once feared that I was gonna be accused of more than what I had done. Every single time that I've been stopped, I never once was afraid for my life or thought that that officer meant any ill towards me. In fact, most of the time they just laughed at me and said, you're just a teenager, you're just a kid, let me go. And I realize now that that is not true for my friends and neighbors of color. My prayer over the last six years has been Psalm 139 verses 23 to 24. Search me, God, and know my heart and test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, find what is evil in me, find what is complicit in me, find what is not good in me, root it out, God, kill it, take it from me, show me what I'm doing that needs to change, show me the ways that I'm seeing people that is wrong, show me the prejudices that I don't even realize yet that I'm a part of and make them visible to me so that I can cut them out of my life. Through this, I've realized that as a follower of Jesus, it's my responsibility to care for the marginalized 
and the cast out and the poor and the meek. And right now, this community is crying out for help. And so it is my responsibility as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus to step up in any way that I can and say, I hear you. I hear your pain. How can I help? That's my story of how my heart is changing and has changed. I want to help you with your perspective. Because here's what I know. It is hard to change a perspective you've built over your entire life. I know that. I know how hard it is. I've lived it. I've been there. I've thought this way. I thought I was right. I knew I wasn't a bad person. I would say, I'm not. This couldn't be about me. I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. Listen to me. It can be in you whether or not you want it to be. And you, if it is, you can change it. Sometimes you just need a perspective switch. And so I had a conversation with a friend named Charles, and, uh, and I want to help you if you are like me and you grew up with no context for what our, our, our friends and neighbors in the African-American community are feeling right now. If you grew up with no context for that, I want to help you to gain some. And so just watch this conversation that I have with my friend today. All right. Well, Charles Madkins, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me today. Um, Charles, why don't you tell us just for a minute who you are, where you're from, and what your career was, and what you're doing now. Okay, my name is Charles Matkins. I <clears throat> am from Texas. I was born in a small town east of Dallas. And um, first few years of my life, I lived with my grandparents and mm. out in the country, small town. That's basically where I got my, my foundation of who I am. My grandparents mm. were very religious. Uh, I mean, religious that when, the, when it would rain, thunder and lightning, she'd make us all sit quietly still because the Lord was doing his work. Come on, I you like know, that, so, that's good. Um, but it's, it's, it's what established to basically who I am. I mean, I love yeah. my grandparents and they, uh, gave me a good sense of right and wrong. I yeah. mean, uh, we went to church all the time, of course. And, yeah. And uh, but they taught me about life, how to treat people, be nice, you know, um, be compassionate, you know, and, and and the basic things, you know, that makes a good human being. I mean, they were. You know, I mean, they were, they were my idols. You know, that's good. That's good, Charles. And so, what I want, you know, my hope in this conversation is that that we were just talking outside, and and you were saying that this is one of those moments where people are listening. That a lot of times there's people hurting and going through all kinds of stuff, and nobody's paying attention to it. We can't hear it, and this stuff hits the news, like what's happened with George Floyd and. Ahmed Aubrey and and uh, and the whole the whole story in the media right now and and we are all saying okay somebody's hurting and we're listening and so what I I think that for so many of us um, people who who feel like white people like me have felt like we we haven't been able to see that this is a problem and yeah. so you told me some stories before about being a kid that blew my mind because was, you're my friend and you, you've lived through things that I've, I've only seen in history books. Not because you're old, but because you're experienced. 
tell me what what kind of things did your grandparents have to tell you and teach you when you were a kid that my grandparents wouldn't have had to teach my parents? Yeah. I thought about being raised by my grandparents and the things that they taught me and what I went through. And I mean, for the most part, I was this naive kid running around, yeah. you know, just, just wanted to play. But I thought of little things that back then that didn't make any sense, but as I got older, yeah, they started to make sense. So, but uh, I remember just being around the house with my grandmother and I had a pair of pliers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd been to the mechanic shop in different places, you know, mm -hmm. these older guys, they have tools yeah. in their pockets and stuff. And I, I had these pliers in my pocket and uh, my grandmother told me I couldn't, I couldn't take those pliers in my pocket. I can't, she told me, and I, and I, again, I didn't understand why, but she was letting me, yo, you, couldn't, you can't walk around with those pliers in your pocket. As you grow, you realize what she was telling me was, for a black man to walk around with tools in their pocket, it's, it's either a weapon or it's a tool to commit a crime. How old I mean, were you? That's, I wasn't even... I don't know how old I was, but I, I wasn't even in grade school yet mm. when she told me that. But there was always little things, and my grandparents, I mean, they were more reserved, you know, quiet people, so I mean, they weren't... Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't a constant topic of conversation no, at the house. But my grandmother especially, she would take the opportunity to explain something to me mm -hmm. or just tell me to be quiet about mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, just like when we, we'd go to town, when we went to go to the courthouse, so well, the drinking fountains there. I mean, they had a white, white fountain for whites only and then a colored fountain. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember the time that I asked her, why did it say colored? Because both of them were white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And of course, she didn't take the time to explain to me the yeah. difference that, you know, you know, I'm just looking at these two porcelain, white porcelain water fountains. And, but, she, but that was one of those times she just told me to be quiet because we were in a public yeah. place and she would explain. Wouldn't it be better if we could all see the world the way kids do? Yeah. <laughs> it would be. But, you know, as, as I grew, I thought about little things like that. And in, in the same town, as you entered the town, I mean, they all, yeah. they back then they had a sign that said, "Welcome to." This was Greenville, Texas. It says, "Welcome to Greenville, the blackest land, the whitest people." Yeah, that was that was the sign <laughs> it, when you yeah. entered. And it was, I think, eventually they they took it down, and uh, and I don't know if they later on they put up a different sign. Uh, it said, "The Welcome to Greenville." the blackest land, the greatest people, you know. And I don't know if that one's still up, but, um, you know, it's, it's the, I think one guy tried to explain sometimes what they meant by the whitest people was that it, it was meant to include everyone, you know, that, and meaning that people, that uh, the people of Greenville were in, in, in full of integrity and friendly. Pure, but yeah. At the same time, I didn't feel that way. I never felt that it was. Didn't feel that way. Didn't yeah, feel very no, welcoming. Not at all. How, how do you feel like growing up in a world like that informed your worldview as you grew up? You know, as 
as I was thinking about this, I, there, there was not a lot of major incidents that shaped what I think or how I feel, but I mean, it was, it's just an accumulation of mm -hmm. uh, all those little things like that. And, you know, when, when we were in the country, we were, I mean, we were, we were out in the middle of nowhere. I can remember maybe four black families in that whole mm -hmm. town that we lived in. But when we got to, when I got school age and moved to Fort Worth, then it was, it was a, a lot different, a lot more interaction. And so you dealt with a lot more people and you, there were a lot of other confrontations and situations that, that helped you see how the, how the world was and yeah. how, how, things, how things were. Yeah. And I, I think about that now, and I thought about what, you know, what I lived through growing up and, and how I am today. And, and, and I really hadn't thought about it until recently that everywhere I go, I, I think about who I am. You know, I think mm -hmm. about being a black man everywhere. When I go to the grocery store, when I go to Ingalls, I think about I'm a black man going in this store, and I think about how people see me going in, not just as a shopper, but this black guy coming in into the store. And, and it's just, I mean, it's just second nature. I don't think about I have to do that. I just do that. And it's, I mean, it's just, it's just second nature to me. I think that's the, the conversation that we're having right now globe, nation, nationwide and globally is that that's not fair and that we don't, you know, we don't want your grandkids, I don't want your grandkids to have to grow up and feel that way when they walk into us. We shouldn't have to. And I think that, you know, for people listening who, who have been maybe on the other side of the conversation, you know, and have, have, have been more so saying, well, I'm not racist. You know, I don't, I don't have hate in my heart. I don't feel like I'm hateful towards people. I've never done any big, I've never said anything racist or done anything racist, but may, maybe there's a, a lot less people who are blatantly mean in, in their racism and more people who, like you said, it's an accumulation of little things that we don't realize we're complicit in or that we don't realize we're doing. Yeah. And I think we're seeing an awareness brought to that right now. So for many years, tell us what your job was in, in Texas. I was actually a police officer for 26 years. 26 yeah. years as a police officer. You did pretty much everything a police officer can do during that time, didn't you? Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. So as a police officer with the, all the news and the attention being on the police right now, um, tell me a little bit about your, your experience. I mean, did you encounter racism as a police officer or did you feel, did you see the change that could be made? Did you see stuff like yeah. that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I've, I've seen it everywhere and the police department was, was no different. Um, there were, I mean, police officers that did racist things and, you know, uh, there were calls that I went on, you know, people that I had to deal with. I mean, it was, um, you encountered it there as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, going to a call one time and uh, I showed up and lady opened the door and her first words were, oh, you're black. And it was, you know, of course, I mean, that was, I'd, I'd been on a while, so I knew, you know, to, you know, you could expect, you, you know, sometimes you just got to expect the, the unexpected. And, and she didn't say it mean, and so my, my, my comment was, yeah, they sent you an upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that kind of broke the ice, yeah. and she went ahead and told me what, what she had to say. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it was just, if I had let it, that could have been, yeah. you know, it, it could have gone totally different. Yeah. And that, that's, one of the, that's one of the other things I guess I've learned in, in, in coping with things in life is that I learned how to smile because... What was your nickname on the police force? It was Happy. It was Happy. Yeah. So, but yeah, long before the police department, I, I learned, you know, a smile was the way to go. Because, yeah. I mean, I could have been an angry black man, yeah. I mean, and, and, and there were times I was, but I, I also learned that the anger didn't get me anything but frustration and more anger. Mm. So learning how to smile, learning how to just deal with it and smile through it, I learned that it became my best, one of my best tools and my best asset. Mm. Because when I smiled, people didn't know if I was angry. I mean, you know, they didn't know what mm. to think. Mm. And, mm. and of course, when you smile as well, especially if people are uncomfortable with you, they stop seeing you and they start seeing your smile. And, mm -hmm. and people at ease. And people, you know, and people will comment on my smile. And so, you know, it was something that, you know, I always try to do. It's mm. even, you know, if I didn't want to. Uh, you sure, we, we were talking the other day about, um, little things that you had to encounter that was again the accumulation of little things and you were a school resource officer for a time and uh, when I was in high school and I've shared this uh, in the message that this video is attached to if you're if you've seen it but um, when I was in high school I was this uh, southern South Carolina boy with a big lifted Jeep and I had this Confederate flag on my Jeep and I remember people arguing with me about it and, and me saying, oh, it's not a big deal, you know, it's, it's just heritage, you know, heritage, not hate, and, yeah. and all those things. And you, and you were the school resource officer in school where there was little John Marks running around saying and doing these same things. Yeah. yeah. And how did it feel? I mean, you said you knew these were just kids being kids, mm -hmm. but... It, it's like we were talking about earlier. I mean, it's different things affect people differently. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, being a police officer, I had to deal with and I encountered things all the time that were that might be uncomfortable for me. But at the same time, you know, our job is to serve and protect. That's so, right. I mean, you can't you had to put the personal feelings aside and yeah. deal with whatever it was that you needed to deal with. And these boys, uh, you know, I was a school resource officer, so this was a situation where I, I knew these kids, and they were, they were, you know, had a truck, of course, you oh, know, yeah. Big uh, with truck. the 
with the, with the roll the, bars on the side. Well, had, whip antenna, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had the uh, Confederate flag on that, just, you know, driving around, just, you know, having a good time. And of course, it upset people. Hmm. And, you know, I, I had known, I actually known most of these boys for a long time because some of them played baseball and, and, and different things. And, and they were good kids. I mean, I didn't personally think they were racist. Yeah. I had never seen them do or say anything that, that I'd consider that. But at the same time when, you know, different things evoke different memories for people. That's right. And, and, and like I said, you know, racism is, is it's, it's different for everybody. Yeah. You know, every, everybody's hurts a little different. Yeah. You know, the pain might be the same for, for all of us, but they're hurt in different ways and different things evoke different memories or they bring back certain incidents, hurtful incidents or, you know, things that might be uncomfortable or, and, and things like that. But, um, and that's, that's something that, that I actually had to learn as well. It's, it's you know, because honestly, for me, you know, Confederate flag doesn't bother me. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but I can't say because it doesn't bother me, it doesn't bother, it shouldn't bother someone else mm -hmm. because it, it doesn't evoke a memory for me. Mm -hmm. there, there are certain things, you know, that that people can do that that will bring back memories for me wow. that won't bring back memories for them. So, yeah. um, I think those are the kind of things that we have to remember too. Is that you don't know what someone else has experienced. No. Yeah. No. And everybody sees the world through the experiences that they've had. Right. And and you may say, well, I don't mean any harm, but when you're doing yeah. something that is reminding them of something yeah. that did mean them harm, then it just gets so real for them, yeah. and it's hard. It's you. That's what empathy is. And I think that's part of what's going on today is these, the different things that have happened over the last few years have brought back memories for a lot of people of things mm -hmm. that, that may not, that weren't deadly or may not have been deadly or mm -hmm. may not have been as drastic, but that were hurtful in their lives, that yeah. caused them pain, that still caused them pain. And you know, and you try to move past these things, but things happen, and those memories come back. That's right. And all of a sudden, you're you're hurting all over again. It's about pain. Yeah. What do you, would you say to the people watching? There's a lot of people who are who are seeing all this in the news, all the protesting, and and the pain that people are feeling, and don't get what the fuss is all about. Well, I mean, I would just remind them of what we've been talking about. It's it's. Yeah. You know, we see what's going on today, and it's, it's, you know, it's recorded, and it's on the news, and so we can see it happening. But we don't know the personal struggles that all of these people have had in their past that are the ones that are protesting. We, we, we don't know about all their little pains, That's all right. of those accumulations that have brought them to this point. That's right. I mean, you know, all of us see what happened in Minnesota. That's right. And we're outraged and, it's, and, and we think that should never happen. Right. 
you know, and it's just, I mean, it, and it's disgusting that, you know, the person taking that video, they're telling that officer that, you know, he's saying he can't breathe and the yeah. officer almost has a smirk and almost taunting the person taking the video. And that's just, it's just not acceptable. And we see that, but so there's, there's thing, there's those little things that go on every day. Yeah. You know, and, and for, for us to do something, I think we, we've got to remember that the little things that happen every day, not just remember this and, and be satisfied and forget you know, I, I think everybody wants to see charges filed against these officers. And if that happens, mm -hmm. then then we feel, okay, that yeah. justice has been served. But, but it's not enough. No. We've got we've to continue um, and strive to, 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 you know, love one another, to be compassionate. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's when we show empathy and we we're concerned about one another that you know then then we can start to make change that's right that's so good and that's it it's it's just that we got to keep remembering that, that there's so much anger in so many young people and so many people right now that are watching the news and seeing what happened to george floyd and they're saying what if that had been me what if that had been my father what if that had been my son what if, but, and they're and they're thinking through all these moments that weren't televised or weren't weren't maybe they weren't as big, but they could have been easily. And so this is this is a, a moment for empathy. And so Charles, I appreciate so much you sitting down and having this conversation with me. We appreciate you so much, man. You so Char Charles is uh, is always working hard behind the scenes for us. He's been telling me that he wants to get on stage more. So. We, <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Well, man, I love you, and I thank you so much for, for talking to me. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Charles, for sharing that with us and, and talking to me. I, I, was, I was hearing this conversation that I was having with Charles, and the thing that I just kept thinking about was, was this pain that he's talking about, how the hurt, the hurt is different for everybody, but the pain is a common experience that an entire race of people in our country are feeling every single day. And... Here, here's what this moment is about. It's about systemic change. It's about changing the way that our police interact and, and finding out, you know, it's not acceptable to have a bad apple in a good bunch. You've got to find them and get rid of them. And it's about all that, but it's also about people who, who may think, well, this doesn't affect me. This is outside of me. Taking the moment to listen, to see, and to hear, and to empathize and say, okay, you're telling me that you've had pain throughout your life. At some point you had to make a choice. Am I going to be angry or am I going to be optimistic? Am I going to, am I going to walk into this store and smile so people know that I'm safe or am I going, or, or am I going to choose to just go with the anger that this pain has given me? It is not fair that that choice has to be made by young men and women across our country. And, and it's time, it's time, it's time. It's time to do something about it, to change, and to start to, to start to have a conversation about what it looks like for the children who are growing up now to get to be Charles' age of somewhere in his early 40s and be able and be able to not have to choose between optimism and pain, but to be able to be honest with their feeling and feel accepted and loved and cared for by the country that they live in. Maybe you're uncomfortable. 
at this point in the message. Maybe the whole conversation makes you uncomfortable. Maybe you disagree with it. You can't see a problem with the way things are. You love the police and our country and you think there's no systemic problems. And, and you, listen, I hear you and I understand it is uncomfortable it, it, for those who the system benefits. It is always hard to see the problems. It's time to approach this the way that Jesus would. See, Jesus didn't live in a world without systemic racism. Outside Jerusalem, there was a place called Samaria. And Samaria, uh, the Samaritans that lived there, were considered racially less than the Jewish people. The word that the Jewish people used for them would be translated half-breeds. They considered them half-breeds who were beneath the Jewish race of people and the Samaritans weren't allowed to worship God the way that the Jewish people did. They weren't allowed in the same spaces of worship. They weren't allowed in the same cities and villages. They weren't allowed to enter into the same territories as the Jews. They couldn't draw water from the same wells as the Jews. A Jewish historian records an incident in 51 AD, shortly after the time of Jesus, and just a couple years before the Gospel of Luke would begin circulation, where a Jewish person was killed by a Samaritan while traveling through the Samaritan village of Janae. The Jewish people responded first by asking the Romans for justice, but when it wasn't quick enough, they entered the city and killed everybody in it and burned the whole city to the ground. To help you bridge the context, in 1919, a Navy sailor felt cheated in a game of cards by a black man in Charleston, South Carolina. Instead of seeking justice and finding the one man who cheated him, 1,200 Navy sailors entered into that part of town, uh, injured and wounded around 300 people, killed several, and burned down dozens of homes and businesses. I hope you can see the similarities. And it didn't stop 100 years ago at the race riot in Charleston. Just a few weeks ago, two white, young, two white men thought a young black man was burglarizing their neighborhood and the neighborhood that he lived in. And so they shot him while he was out for a jog. You see, the world that Jesus lived in had racism that played out very similar to the one that we live in 2,000 years later. And Jesus entered into that story. In John 4, 4, it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. In fact, it says Jesus had to go through Samaria, which is interesting because Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. He had been doing ministry in Judea and he was going back to Galilee. And the way that most Jews would go from Judea to Galilee or vice versa was a way that followed the sea. It was about three times longer than going through Samaria because they did not want to be in the presence of Samarians so, Samaritans so deeply that they would rather take a journey three times as long than pass through Samaria. Jesus says, we're not going to go around what is uncomfortable for us. We're going to go straight through it. We're not going to avoid what we don't want to have to encounter. We are going to go directly into the heart of it and we're going to address this face to face. And so he says, I had to go to Samaria. He gets there and he sends the disciples on their own into the village to find lunch. This moment where the disciples leave Jesus and go into a village in Samaria to find lunch would have been terrifying for 12 Jewish men. It would be similar to 12 white men in segregation era America having to walk into one of the black neighborhoods that they had marginalized. 
and be around the people that they had made to feel less than and be outnumbered for once. And they would begin to feel uncomfortable and they would begin to see what it felt like to be on the other side of the coin. I think Jesus did this intentionally. I think he wanted a conversation to start. I think he wanted to make an object lesson out of this moment that they were in. So the disciples leave Jesus. They go into the village and Jesus sits down at a well. Next, Jesus pulls up a chair to have a dialogue with someone who felt outcast even among the outcasts. A woman came to the well and Jesus spoke to her to ask for a drink. This was unusual because Jesus was Jewish and she was Samaritan. This was unusual because Jesus was a man and she was a woman. This was unusual because of a million different reasons, but Jesus did it anyways. And the woman even says in verse 9, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How could you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. What happens next is a conversation. They discuss their differences. Jesus tells her that the issues that divided their two races are going to disappear, and that a day is coming when people from both sides of the border would worship together. Jesus enters the space, he pulls up a chair, he starts a conversation, and he points it towards the kingdom of God. Later in his ministry, he would bring this racial tension into the conversation one more time. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus was telling people to love their neighbors even as much as they loved themselves. And a lawyer asked him, who is my neighbor? Because lawyers always be looking for a loophole. So Jesus told a story about a man getting robbed and left for dead and two Jewish religious people walking by and ignoring him and then a Samaritan man stopping to help him. The man who had been marginalized, the man who had been cast out, the man who was different became the neighbor in the story. See, the moral of the story is that your neighbor is the person who has a need that you can meet. And so with all this context in mind, here's how I believe we as the church should respond to this current cultural moment. First, I think we should pray. I think pray first is the slogan that you should live by, that you should wake up and think, that you should, you should always approach every situation with careful prayer and consideration. In order for these systems to change, our hearts have to change. And heart change always has to start in prayer. If you've struggled with what's right and what's wrong during this season, first take a moment to pray. If you've struggled with the injustices that you've had to live through, take a moment to pray. To my white friends and community, join me in praying through Psalm 139. Search me, my God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in your way everlasting. If I'm a part of the problem, God, then show me. If I've been silent for too long, then show me. Root out the generational sins that live within me, God. I ask that you would open my eyes so that I can stop being a part of the problem, so that I can stop ignoring the problem, and so that I can start to actively pursue a solution on behalf of my children and their children and the children that come. Let us change the way that things have been. For my black friends and our community, ask God for the confidence that he will do again what he has done before. Ephesians 2.14 says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. Paul is rejoicing. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, 
He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. I believe there is a wall of hostility that was built 400 years ago in this country. And I believe there is only one way that it is coming down. It is not only coming down uh, through, our, through our anger and our pain. It is not only coming down through political change, but it has got to start by letting the walls that have been built in our hearts, these walls of hostility that are so deep inside of us, many of us don't even know they're there, in each and every person, in the individual is where it has to start. In your heart, you gotta start to allow that heart to break down. And to my friends who feel tired of waiting, who feel like, I don't know if it's ever gonna happen for me, for my family, for my kids, have hope that what God has done before, he can do again. If he's done it before, he can do it again. If he's done it before, he can do it again. He can break down these walls. I know it doesn't feel like it, but I believe that he can do it. But first we're gonna have to pray. And so let us start on your knees. And once you've been praying, practice empathy. Here it is. Before you seek to be understood, seek to understand before you seek to be understood seek to understand pastor robbie always says that i'm really really great no pastor robbie always says we have a tendency to judge others by their actions and judge ourselves by our intentions i believe it's time for us to start to judge and understand the intentions of others. To stop looking past just our actions, but to begin to practice empathy. When asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus replies, love God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength and love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. And that is what empathy is. Apply the standard you apply to you to someone else. Try to understand what it would be like to love somebody who doesn't look like you, talk like you, sound like you, think like you, the way that you love you. Somebody said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with the person who was being racially oppressed by the people he was talking to. I believe it's time for us all to start to see things from someone else's perspective. Hebrews 12, 2 says, remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them. Another translation says, remember those who are in chains as though you were in chains with them and those who are mistreated since you also are of the same body, as though you were in chains. Do not watch just from the outside. It's not enough to just not be racist. Try to understand from someone else's perspective. Your pain is my pain. We may look different, but we are of the same body of Christ. We make up the same body of people. One day we will worship before our God in the same room, people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And so it's time for me to stop just hearing you talk about your pain and for me to start listening to your pain as though it were my pain, to start to see your chains as though they were my chains, to start to feel it the way that you feel it. That's what empathy is. Empathy steps into the room with you. It doesn't look through a window and say, what's going on over there? Empathy steps into the room and it pulls up a chair and it sits down and it says, what are we going through today? How can I be a part of it? Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who 
weep. I'll tell you that my choice today is to weep with those who weep. So what does that look like right now? Because empathy is the way of Jesus. I believe that right now, instead of saying, I can't believe they are doing that, say, I wonder why they feel like this is their only option. What has pushed these people so far? Ask questions. See things from somebody else's point of view. Jesus didn't enter the conversation from safe in his home in Galilee or Jerusalem. He entered the conversation from a well in Samaria. He had his disciples walk through that village to see what it felt like on the other side of racism. See, together and through a conversation, they sought to understand one another in the same space. This is the same thing I would ask us as a church to do. Last week, I watched a million different messages. I recommend all of them. One was a conversation between Pastor John Gray and Pastor Stephen Furtick at Elevation Church. And it said, Pastor John Gray said, on one side of this is pain and resentment. And on the other side of this is ignorance and apathy. And when we learn to practice empathy, and we allow the Holy Spirit into the conversation, there can be healing on both sides. And the systems of racism and the results of racism can be defeated once and for all. Maybe we can't control the way that broken people respond. But we, as followers of Jesus, can control the way that the church responds. So let us respond in empathy. And let us respond in grace. And let's hear what people are saying and begin to consider why. Finally, the last thing is this. It's time to pay attention. Proverbs 18, 13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. Right now, I confess before you that too many times I've given an answer before I've heard and it has been my folly and it has been my shame and I repent and I don't go that way anymore. I choose a different direction. I choose instead of answering before I hear, I wanna take a minute and I just wanna listen. Before I start running my mouth, I wanna be quick to listen and slow to speak. I wanna to try to understand. So again, my white friends, I wanna speak directly to you in this season, in this moment. In our church, we have both white and black, police and protester, young and old. And if we can make this space here, the gathering church, look more like heaven, I believe we can make a big impact in our community. And so here's what I want to say. Don't give an answer before you hear. I know the rioting is bad, it's scary. Some of it is broken people taking advantage of somebody else's pain. And some of it is a reaction to centuries of trauma. See, trauma produces a kind of pain that causes us to act in ways that don't always make sense. And it's time for you and me to admit that our black community has experienced real, lasting trauma for 400 years in our country. I said before, I've been pulled over many times in my life. Never been afraid. Ask your black friends if they have. Many of them will answer yes. Many of them will know what it feels like to be followed around a store because of the color of their skin. Many of them will know the fear of keeping their hands visible in any encounter with the police. 
many of them have had people question them whether or not they belonged in the nice neighborhoods they were entering. See, this problem is systemic. Systemic. You may not have caused it, but you and I have most likely been complicit through our silence. So it's time to stop, and it's time to listen, and it's time to pay attention. When my kids are feeling pain, they don't always communicate it in the best ways. Often it comes out as anger and outrage. And my usual instinct as a parent, because I'm not always a great one, is to be angry myself or to punish that outrage or to lash out in return or not to hear them and just to be quiet. I'm trying to go about my moment. I'm trying to live in my day. Would you stop shouting? Would you stop yelling? I'm trying to cook some breakfast over here. Would you quit whatever it is you're going on and on about? My children are just trying to tell me that they are in pain. It never helps when I yell at them. See, what helps is when I sit down or get down on a knee in front of them make eye contact and I pay attention to your to their pain so to my black friends and community I'm paying attention to your pain I see you I hear you I'll never experience it but I'm here to help you breathe through it starts in each and every one of us as the church we can bring love and empathy where there was hurting and pain as the church we can bring love and unity where there was hatred and division as the church we are uniquely positioned to solve the heart problems of this world and I believe that we can I believe that we will I believe that what Jesus did on the cross is bigger than racism it's bigger than a cultural moment it's bigger than the things that have divided us for far too long I believe that he in his blood and his power there is enough to heal even the most broken of hearts the most severed of relationships I believe that God can use moments like the one we are right now in to snap us into a moment of attention where we stop looking inward at ourselves just for a second and we look up and say what's going on around me let's pay attention church let's pay attention let's help let's hear let's care let's do what we were called to do Jesus in one of the last things that he said to his disciples he said they will know you are my followers by the way that you love one another Let's love one another. Let's show them who Jesus is right here in our city, right now. Heavenly Father, we give this moment to you, this season to you. I believe that you are the one who is bringing the visibility to this moment. That, Lord, you are the God who hurts when we hurt. You are the God who weeps when we weep, your scripture says you mourn with those who mourn, that you care about the marginalized, the cast out. You say you will bind up the brokenhearted, that your mission is to come and find us in these broken spaces and start to whisper hope into our hearts. And so, Jesus, we need you right now. 
We need you in our city. We need you across our country. We need you in our homes and in our houses. We ask that you would come and that you would heal us, that you would heal our hearts. Let every change not begin somewhere else or, or in some county house or, or in some state capital or in the capital of our country. Let every change begin right here in my home and in my heart, God. Let me start to lead my children to a different future. Let me find what's missing in me, God. Show me, search me, and point out every offensive way, oh God. And in homes across our community today, as we pray together, I, begin, I just ask that you would begin a work, God, that you would begin a work in us, and that you would carry it on to completion that we would learn to love one another better, that we would learn to love the way that you love. You love without borders. You love without seeing any kind. You, you saw our hurt. You saw our pain. You saw every moment where we felt less than, and you met us in those spaces. And help us begin to see like you see and to hear like you hear and to love the way that you love. We worship you. We honor you. We believe that you are good no matter what is happening in the world around us. And we worship you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.